XY Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast, putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you, free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I am here today with James Garrett Jr., one of the managing partners of Formula. It is a design firm based up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and um, I reached out to James a couple of weeks ago after all of the uh, things happened up in Minnesota with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protest and everything that's been going on in this country. And as we are all dealing with the pandemic, we're dealing with um, uh, racial issues here in this country. I thought it would be uh, great to bring uh, James on to the podcast to talk a little bit about his experiences, to talk about uh, what he sees as the future of architecture in this space and especially as it pertains to um, uh, black and brown individuals and those that are trying to break into the ranks of uh, the design industry. And so without further ado, James Garrett, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah. So listen, I'd love for you just to kind of share with the audience a little bit about your, as I like to say, the superhero origin story or your background. You as I, as I learned a little bit more about you specifically, you are um, a multi-generational um, resident of the Twin Cities area. I think five generations or more that have been in that area. So you are from Minnesota and, and specifically from the Twin Cities. I'd love for you just to kind of share about, about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, I am a fifth generation St. Paulite. Uh, my great great grandmother uh, moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, and she decided that you know this was a place that she wanted to stay. She saw a future. Um, she saw um, the early 1900s, late 1800s. She saw a place that she felt was progressive, and um, she felt like there were a lot of opportunities for um, people of color, particularly. Um, black folks in in St. Paul, and uh, she decided she was going to put down roots and stay. And as we understand it, she was the first um, black homeowner on Rondo Avenue, which was the heart of the black community for several generations. Um, it was unfortunately um, destroyed when Interstate 94 was built in the 1950s, and my family home was part of the eminent domain, um, as was my business partner, Nathan Johnson. Um, our grandparents were actually neighbors and grew up together on Rondo. And um, both of them had their houses taken um, via eminent domain and demolished. And that sort of dispersed uh, the black community. And so the black community was very different um, when I grew up there. Um, <clears throat> as a point of reference, 
Um, I happen to be born in the United States Virgin Islands. Uh, my parents were were after college at Michigan State. My parents moved to the Virgin Islands and they taught um, in the late '60s, early '70s. And ultimately, um, when I was little, we we moved back here. When I was a baby, we decided to come back uh, to what was, you know, um, my mom's side of the family was home. And, um, and so I came back and I went to elementary school here, junior high, high school here. And um, at that time, I decided to go to the West Coast for my architectural education, my undergrad. And then I went to New York City for graduate school. And then, um, you know, I keep being called back here. I keep ending up back here in, in St. Paul. And, uh, you know, we, after a brief stint in the Dominican Republic, um, where I met and married my wife, um, we decided to come back here in, in, in 2012 and, um, continue with the business here. Um, she's also an architect in her home country down in the Dominican Republic. So we formed a formula branch down there. Um, that we operated out of and, and did work out of um, during my stint down there. And then um, we finished up some projects and um, moved back, moved back to, to Minnesota for like the fourth or fifth time. You, know, I, <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't get out of, get, can't get out of coming back to Minnesota. Not for long. There's, there's a, there's a real gravitational pull here um, for a lot of people. A lot of us, it's, it, we find it really difficult to leave. It's a very family oriented place. Uh, tradition is important. History is important. Um, in St. Paul, probably I'd say more so than Minneapolis. Um, <clears throat> the cities are the twin cities, but they're fraternal twins at best that don't always get along. Yeah. Um, so we're we're very close in geographic uh, location. We border each other. Um, our histories are intertwined with one another. But the cities have evolved very differently, um, both generally and specifically for the black communities. So um, St. Paul tends to be more conservative, um, more traditional. Um, it's more about neighborhoods, um, neighborhoods, churches, playgrounds. You know, that's how St. Paul people kind of identify themselves. Um, if you meet someone on an airplane, they want, people want to know, you know, I mean, everything from what hospital were you born in? But, you know, what park did you play baseball at? You know, that's right. how St. Paul people refer to each other. Um, whereas Minneapolis has always been, you know, and St. Paul is the capital city, right? Um, cathedral, the, you know, there's all the historic architecture. It's, you know, it's very sort of heavy and, and traditional and sort of stable in that way. Whereas Minneapolis is, is about finance, commerce, um, you know, uh, the velocity of transactions happening. Um, it was a mill town, you know, on the side of the Mississippi River that took advantage of, uh, of the falls, uh, the natural falls there. Um, and they used the power of that water to mill uh, the grain that would come up from the heartland and it became Mill City and it dominated its region, but it was about money, money, money. And it reinvents itself every generation. And there's wild swings in terms of um, how things happen in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis will destroy all the history that they have in order to create the newest, biggest, best thing of this moment. And so there's an adventurousness in, in Minneapolis that St. Paul just doesn't have. Yeah. Um, and I think in the spirit of the people, it's also the way that the city, um, the city is formed and the, the way that things sort of uh, manifest themselves in the city. Yeah. You know, I've spent, I've spent time both in, in uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul. I did a, I did a training at the, um, the science uh, center science museum. That's right there on um, the Mississippi river. Beautiful facility. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful facility. But even just walking down in that downtown area of of St. Paul, it's very unique with the architecture that you see and experience there. And it it is a little it does feel different than Minneapolis uh, from that perspective. Um, I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about your you didn't get into architecture by accident. 
Uh, I want and there's a couple of things I want to talk about because I want to get to the George Floyd incident uh, because that was one of the things that really sparked it. But I think, honestly, if George Floyd had never happened, I would want to talk to you just about this whole idea. But but now you're is it great grandfather was one of the city architects for St. Paul? My grandpa's godfather. My grandfather was James S. Griffin and his godfather was Clarence Cap Wigington. And Cap Wigington was the city architect in this town for about 40 years. And he designed an amazing number of, of buildings and structures from like the 19 teens through the 1950s. And uh, I mean, he designed uh, my grandparents' home, you know, that I spent a lot of time growing up in. He designed my grade school, which I didn't know at the time until I was an adult, um, a building that I love very much in the Art Deco style. Um, he designed uh, the Highland Park Water Tower, which is one of the iconic structures um, in the city of St. Paul. Um, in the Highland Park neighborhood, he designed a number of schools, park buildings. Um, there's a pavilion named after him um, in downtown St. Paul along the river um, that he designed. So just a prolific architect. He designed the St. Paul Airport, Home and Field. Um, uh, he's, he's legendary. He's really one of um, two or three architects that are super well known here and that have a, a number of buildings on the historic register, but he's, he's one of them. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, you, if you were to go to, to, to St. Paul and spend any time there, you wouldn't even know that, that a black person had their thumbprint on the design and aesthetic of that, that city, the way he did. Nope. And it was actually in denial for many years here, you know, after he left and, and retired and moved to California, um, a lot of it was forgotten. A lot of his um, accomplishments were sort of covered up. Some were forgotten about. Um, there was a sort of a disinformation campaign basically to try to write him out of history to some degree. And uh, my grandfather was very instrumental um, in using his platform as a city leader, um, 42 years in the police department. Um, he was a deputy chief of police. He was on the school board for 16 years here in St. Paul. Um, and he had a platform. He was very well known in the community. And he really, he dug up a bunch of archival information and a bunch of drawings that had, uh, you know, Uncle Cap's signature on them. And, you know, he was very adamant about representing this, this story that he knew his godfather was the city architect because he was his godfather and he looked up to him and he, he, he knew what he was doing in all the buildings that, that, you know, that he had designed and that had his name, you know, his name, um, and his architect's signature written on them. And so, um, after exhaustive research by, uh, actually one of my staff members, Lissa Washington, her uncle, um, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> her uncle, David Taylor, who was the general studies, uh, the college of general studies, uh, president at the University of Minnesota for many years here. He actually wrote the book on Uncle Cap and uh, documented everything. And so it become it became indisputable that uh, you know it became indisputable that he had actually designed all these these incredible buildings. Um, he documented them, he he listed them, um, he listed them in in order and uh, the city of St. Paul then at that point started to really, you know, lean in and uh, really start to celebrate the fact that we had the first black municipal architect in the United States was here and it became kind of a source of pride. And so um, I was at a ceremony where uh, they brought some of his um, together and they dedicated a park building to him, one of the buildings that he designed um, and a number of other things like that. Uh, we started a, a architects organization that I was a part of started a scholarship in his name. Um, you know, we're never going to let that legacy be forgotten now, but it's been documented. It's, it's there. Um, it's in writing and it's, it's irrefutable now. So. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and well, I'm going to have to get that. It's what is it, the title of that is an architectural history in ice and what? Ice and stone. Ice and stone. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to make sure we put that in the show notes because I think people need to see that. So, you know, 
I, and I always say this, I mean, people need to see other people that look like them do something um, in, in order for them to realize that they can do it too. And I'm speaking specifically, so for you as a young African-American um, with the knowledge of this history, and it hasn't been lost on me what you told me about your grandfather being the deputy chief of police. And I want to get to that in a second. But but for you as someone that decided that ultimately, uh, how old were you when you realized you wanted to get into architecture? You know, it's interesting because I've wanted to be an architect since before I knew that there was a word to describe it. Wow. So I'm talking kindergarten, maybe younger. Yeah. Um, I always loved playing with uh, Lincoln Logs, Legos, building anything with anything I could get my hands on, but building stuff. And I was always fascinated with skyscrapers. And I always wanted to, you know, go to the, the observation deck of skyscrapers. I was so obsessed with skyscrapers and drawing skyscrapers and buildings um, that when I was 12, my parents discovered a notebook of mine that I've been keeping where I've been just drawing all these crazy visions of new buildings that didn't exist. And, um, I was drawing all the buildings to scale in downtown Minneapolis, downtown St. Paul. Um, my parents were like, Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So this is a, this is really a thing. Yeah. So after they discovered that notebook, they had to talk with me and they said, you know, let's go on a family trip to Chicago. Chicago has a lot more buildings than than the Twin Cities does. And, you know, we'll, we could just go look at buildings in Chicago. And I was like, really? And so we made a road trip. We went to Chicago and they took me to the Sears Tower. We went to the observation deck, the John Hancock building and went to the observation deck, water tower place, uh, you know, just so I became obsessed with Chicago and, and they bought me a book of Chicago architecture. So then I was obsessed with Chicago buildings, too, and could tell you how tall, you know, you know, to the, the tallest floor of the the uh, the highest point of the Sears Tower, um, which is obviously now the uh, Willis Tower. But, um, you know, those were things that, you know, I was able to obsess over. And um, there was never there was no doubt there was no turning back. It was something that, you know, I knew at a very young age that I want to do and, and architecture fever for me just got, you know, worse and worse and worse, the older I got, you know? Yeah. So it was, yeah, there was, there was only really one path that I could ever remember thinking. Yeah. And you said you went to a fairly diverse high school, but that you encountered some challenges as you tried to express your, um, your, your love for architecture, right? Because I mean, you, you were, you were kind of pigeonholed into taking some shop classes in order to, to prove your worth to, to even get into an architectural program within your high school. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, I went to an extremely diverse high school. Um, it was a majority minority high school um, back in the, in the eighties, um, you know, even at that time. And uh, you know, there was just, there was a there was a division, though, in, in my high school where the AP classes and um, the Quest gifted and talented classes um, and the international baccalaureate classes were all on the upper floor of the building. And the lower three levels of the building were basically, you know, the other classes. Right. And so there was this weird sort of vertical um, social class differentiation thing going on. And you don't really realize it as a kid, but, um, you know, most of my courses were, you know, AP and IB and um, gifted and talented. That was a track that I'd been on since first grade mm -hmm. um, in in the way that the city handles their their gifted and talented programs here. And so um, it was very normal for me to be up on the fifth floor taking all these these classes. But it was very odd that. I had very few other students, um, black and brown students that were in these classes. But then when I'd go to lunchtime, recess, sports, super diverse. And it, it, I didn't I wasn't able to really put it all together um, at the time, sort of what was going on. Um, but there was this sort of form of sort of class differentiation that that was that was happening then. And my I think my first real run-in with the clash to that was when I wanted to take the architecture class. There was only one architecture course. It wasn't really 
you know, well known or anything. Um, but there was a there was a teacher that, you know, was teaching architecture and they were building little models and houses and stuff like that. And I saw that one day and I was like, I want that. That's where I want to be. And so I inquired, like, how do I get in this class? And, you know, they came up with all these excuses and reasons why I couldn't be in the class. And so when I brought my parents up there, because I could not understand, and my parents were obviously huge advocates of, of education, you know, they're both master's degree holders. Um, my mother was, you know, a public school um, administrator for 30 plus years here in, in St. Paul Public Schools. So they were very confused as to why I couldn't take that course as well. So there was a compromise that that was struck that said, you know, if you take these machine drafting courses and and, you know, you do enough machine parts, you draft up enough machine parts, then, you know, you could come in and you can take some of the architecture classes. And so then I thought, hmm, OK, well, I, OK, I guess that's reasonable. Sometimes there's prerequisites. You know, I don't think it was written anywhere, but they just said that this is what you had to do. So I said, oh, OK, I can do that. Yeah. But. I didn't realize that the number of machine parts and that they needed me to 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 qualify to as a prerequisite to get into the class was beyond what could be accomplished um, really during my high school career. I mean, it, you know, um, and I'm, I'm sure they knew that, um, but it was the Minnesota nice soft way of saying absolutely not without ever saying absolutely not. And so once I kind of, you know, I took that, I took that course for a few semesters. And once I realized numerically and mathematically that I'm going to graduate before I ever reach this magical, mysterious number. Um, and then I, I kind of, you know, I kind of lost my taste for it. Um, you know, I was very disappointed and it was just something I was kind of disgusted by. And, you know, I, decided to take other classes and, and focus on, I figured I'd take architecture in college and, you know, I would just deal with it um, at that point. But of course, when I started architecture school in, in college, uh, most of my classmates had taken architecture drafting and architectural model making architectural courses in their high schools in California and elsewhere. So I was, again, I was behind the eight ball. I was underprepared. I had to do a lot of catching up. And, um, you know, it, it really forced me to um, to focus and to really, you know, sharpen my my sword. But, you know, I think not every student might be able to catch up, yeah. you know, um, some students might have been left behind by not being able to have the same preparation that the other students that they're going to be competing with that, you know, that next year in college were, you know, had already had. And so that was my first realization that this was going to be a really uphill battle in this profession and that at every step along the way, um, there were pitfalls and sort of minds set up to, to blow up in my way to divert me towards something more attainable or less, um, less difficult uh, to attain. And I think that those things are still I know that those things are still happening um, in architecture schools all across the country. And I know that um, the gross disparity that we have in terms of the number of African-American architects in this country compared to um, our percentage of the population is directly related to, you know, all of the obstacles that are that are set in young people's paths that discourage them from um, competing and um, continuing on in, in this career. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you say that and I'm sitting here and I'm walking through that and I'm thinking, man, so at you, you, you when people say, well, how come we don't have more black architects? How come we don't have more people of color in the design space? And then you then you start to think, well, if there were roadblocks from high school, roadblocks in undergrad, roadblocks in graduate school, you know, you start to begin to understand the challenges that that uh, design professionals or want to be design professionals face of color that want to want to operate in this space. And then there's a number of those roadblocks. Once you, you know, if you're able to matriculate through and you're able to make it into the professional ranks, uh, you know, our profession is, is full of discouragement, um, limited opportunity for you and uh, micro microaggressions and, uh, and worse. 
Um, and I've had to sort of contend with all of those things in order to make it um, to the point that I'm at. Um, yeah. I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit, but I think it took me working in corporate architecture for just a few years to really realize that if I'm ever going to get to the point where I'm able to to express myself and to really share my full talent and ability, it's it's certainly not going to happen within the confines of the way that the architectural industry is is currently set up. And that, you know, I was very motivated to start my own practice and to try to do things um, in ways that I felt were um, best practices in the industry and were more equitable and, and more just um, for the employees and staff um, that, that we've had come through our doors over the years. You know, we, we've learned the hard way um, from having worked in the industry and seen some of these things firsthand. And there's a lot of things that we learned, um, positive lessons in terms of, you know, ways to sort of organize and, and structure organizations. Um, but we also learned a lot of what not to do. And I think those are equally equally as important. Yeah. You know, and I, and I got to believe, though, that that something happened on the afternoon or early evening of May 25th, 2020, that will ultimately impact how we move things forward. And I'm obviously speaking of the George Floyd incident that took place in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, we're, we're, I think we're riding this wave right now, right? Especially, especially as African-Americans, you're black, I'm black. So we're, we're riding this wave of, okay, everybody is recognizing that we've got a long way to go. And you've experienced it with, as you said, the Minnesota nice effect that does exist and how that pervades or, or happens or impacts or informs how African-Americans are treated, especially in the design industry space. But but where do we where are we able to go? What what have have we been able to um, I guess the best way to put it since George Floyd's death? What door has that opened up for us to move into with regard to how we what we ask for, what we want to do, especially as design professionals? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think about that a lot and I think it's too early to tell. Um, at this point, I'm not convinced that anything has substantively changed um, that would lead to uh, qualitatively better outcomes than what we've been sort of receiving and experiencing for the past, you know, 150 years in this profession. Um, there's a lot of talk, uh, which is great, but there was a lot of talk before. Um and it hadn't led to any concrete action or material action. Uh, ultimately, we're going to need a massive redistribution of resources in this country in all assets, uh, all aspects and all facets of American life. If we are to actually move ourselves into the direction um, that I think is most positive for everyone quite frankly. Um, but if we're really going to look at black people and, you know, our troubled history in this, in this country, in this continent, in this hemisphere um, and other uh, marginalized groups, if we're going to actually make progress, real um, substantive progress, it's, it's going to take a massive uh, redistribution of resources. The way that resources are sort of allocated here in this country cannot continue to be um, allocated and aimed at a very narrow band of, of, of people and to the detriment of really everybody else. Um, I think that's the fundamental thing. Um, with that, we won't need the platitudes in, in the words, right? If we had resources to build our own businesses and take our own initiatives and if we had the funding for our own organizations that, you know, are doing great work, but, you know, if we could force multiply that by really getting behind some of the community groups and community led initiatives that we already have, um, having the resources available to start new initiatives um, to directly target some of the inequities and, and some of the issues um, that we've already identified. If we had access to that, a lot of this stuff could really I mean, we could really make progress towards, um, you know, moving into a post 
craziness era and into a more equitable, just future. But without the resources, um, you know, the conversations, you know, are great, but it doesn't really move the dial. Um, moving the dial requires action and direct action in terms of really reallocating um, resources and funds and opportunity in this country. And I'm not 100% sure that this country is ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, I share the hope with each generation that for my kids, you know, the work that we do, you know, hopefully the work that we do will serve um, my children and their generation and that they'll be able to move into um, a society that's much better um, prepared to deal with diversity of thought, idea, and cultural heritage than we currently are. Yeah. You you talked about, um, I read an article that you were featured in, and you talked about that there is, in your mind, there's a three-step approach that that formula takes um, and that you think that this is something that all architects can actually employ. And as you said, it to achieve more equitable and inclusive outcomes. Would you be able to kind of just give us the framework for this three-step approach and how it plays into or informs what you guys are going to do specifically? Because um, I know you can only speak for yourself, but. Um... Yeah, certainly. Um, formula is really based on three fundamental principles, um, technology, environmental sustainability, and art. Those are the three fundamental premises that, that we have built this, this company on. And our goal is to have community impact and leveraging these three things in order to maximize the impact that we can, that we can have on the communities that we serve. So, Really, the, the first step, um, the way that I um, sort of proselytize this is setting up diverse, um, talented, broadly qualified teams, right? Being able to partner with people that are different than yourself, um, being able to place uh, community artists at, at the center of the process and being able to have them at the table with the architects and the engineers and and everybody else um, that they are part of the design team they're integrated into the design team they are an essential part of the process moving forward um, i'm also a visual artist and an advocate for the arts and there is there are skills and talents and a, a particular type of vision that artists can bring that other people really don't have. They're able to see things and see opportunities um, for expression, for connection, for engaging in ways that most of us just, we don't, we don't have that. We're not equipped to be able to do that. So being able to bring, making commitments to be able to bring those types of folks, um, diverse community artists to the table um, on your project teams, forming diverse teams, experientially diverse, ethnically diverse, culturally diverse, and being able to have those teams then attack uh, design opportunities. To me, that's the fundamental part. Um, as a former athlete, you know, you got to have the right team. You got to have the right composition of, of the squad. If it's a basketball team, everybody can't be eight feet tall and everybody can't be four feet tall, right? You need different people with different um, attributes and different skills to play each position. If you're going to be able to successfully move the ball, you know, up the court, defend your basket and be able to score baskets. Right. So for me, fundamentally being able to put together broadly diverse in terms of talent and experience and sort of ethnic uh, makeup, being able to put those teams together and, and leverage the power of that diversity um, to me, that's the biggest step that you can that you can take. And to me, that's the natural first step that we always uh, take whenever we're we're responding to a request for um, qualifications or a request for proposals. Um, we always try to really be broad thinking about how do we bring the best possible 
um, most diverse, broadest-based squad together to be able to tackle um, the challenges that are in front of us. The second thing that we do once that team is in place, um, we like to basically leverage art, um, sort of employ art as a means of stakeholder engagement. So being able to work with the artists that are on your team to be able to really engage, not just with the, the owner or the client, but with the end users, with the community, uh, community organizations, all different types of, of folks that are going to be affected by whatever it is that you do and to be able to really engage in authentic ways. And I think having artists at the table and artists as part of that process, um, they can really create events that are fun, that are uh, that are engaging, that you can really start to host conversations that you normally can't really host. Right. A, a survey or a spreadsheet or, you know, a checklist does not engage in the level of qualitative dialogue that is necessary to really push things forward and to create possibilities that weren't there before, right? The only thing you can do if you're sort of spreadsheet oriented and checklist oriented, which our society unfortunately leans far too much um, in that direction, the only thing you can do is basically replicate what you've already done. And if, you, if you're if you mired in, in the abject mediocrity of the built environment that we currently have, um, replicating that, that failure essentially over and over again um, is not a pathway towards a more equitable and, and inclusive and just future. So we don't engage in it. So that is, that is step two. It's being able to really engage with folks in a creative arts-based um, way and be able to really dig deep and get a, a higher level of understanding of what the challenge is, but also what the opportunities in front of you are. Um, the third piece of that is we like to deploy art sort of as a design outcome, right? So as you go through this process, as you're getting to know folks, you're getting to know what their needs are, what their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations are, to be able to have that, that engagement with the visual artists on your team, to be able to start to create unique, uh, uh, authentic artworks that speak to that process, that speak to those discoveries, to speak to those the outcomes of those conversations, um, and to be able to integrate those into the actual architecture, um, to really uh, create art integrated architecture and buildings that are reflective of the community and of these qualities um, that are unique to this particular site, this particular time in history. Um, those to me, those three things, being able to put those three things together in relevant, meaningful ways lead to qualitatively better outcomes in terms of the built environment. So I stand on that. I, I lecture on that. I travel all over the country um, speaking about this. Um, I speak at AIA conferences, state architects conferences, um, universities. Um, it's one of the things that I try to impress to the young people that come through the University of Minnesota program um, that I contribute to here as well. So um, I think there's a generation that's very receptive, um, a burgeoning generation um, in Gen Z, the Zoomers that are that are really sort of starting to have their their impact felt on the world inside and outside of of academia and in the streets right now. But I feel like there's a generation there that is very receptive to the concept of doing things differently and reaching for qualitatively uh, superior results rather than just replicating the mediocrity and, and the failures of the past. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you, you kind of laid it out perfectly. So I, I think, you know, if, if you get to play a part in, in, in this creation of something better than what has been experienced in, um, uh, in, in the twin cities, um, is it something that you think is going to inform what happens both in Minneapolis and in, in St. Paul, or is, cause you, you call them fraternal twins. So that means that there, there are unique aspects to both areas. 
So how will that play into this? And are you going to have any part or do you hope to have a part in how Minneapolis creates something new out of out of the the hurt and the pain that has come from this uh, George Floyd situation? Well, I really believe that what we're dealing with is something that is universal. I mean, we're seeing statues of slave owners being tossed into the to the ocean in Europe uh, and all over. There is a, a global undercurrent that the dismantling of the white supremacy system that we've been living under for the last 500 um, to 600 years is it's long overdue. And it's not just limited to what's happening in Minneapolis, and it's not at all separate um, from the struggles that we have, um, you know, here in St. Paul. To me, we're doing work in both cities. Um, We have clients on both sides of the river, and we have staff and um, partners that are from both sides of the river. So we are definitely fully engaged in this battle on, on both sides here simultaneously. And I think what we're looking to do is create something that's more equitable, something that's more just, something that's more inclusive, and something that's more reflective of the experiences, uh, the cultural backgrounds, and able to celebrate the commonalities and the differences that folks of all communities have. And to be able to do so through the built environment, um, through the way that we occupy space. Uh, We've designed parks and and, and pocket parks, open spaces, um, all different types of of, uh, structures. And one of the common threads is that, you know, our built environment no longer really reflects who we are, where we are and where we want to go anymore. And I think that was lost um, at some point post-World War II. Um, through sort of the modern movement and sort of this elimination of uh, decoration and detail um, in the architectural work. And really, after the Art Deco movement ended uh, right at around the time World War II took place, there was a loss of, you know, all major building projects used to have a uh, consulting artist. There was always an architectural artist that was on board um, to work on, you know, whether it's integrating sculpture, uh, frieze, mural, fresco, uh, you know, carving columns and pilasters and, you know, really creating, you know, telling a story, a visual story um, through the built, uh, the act of building. And that was something that was lost. That was something that, you know, I really studied very closely and carefully and something that I want to bring back in sort of a 21st century version um, with attention to um, environmental sustainability and sort of ecological resilience with sort of an emphasis on technology and being able to leverage technology to both execute the work, but then also to express that technology um, in ways to enhance the experience of the buildings for the clients and the end users. Um, so leveraging those two things in the form of artistic expression that's based on sort of a 21st century future forward aesthetic. But that spirit of having that artist at the table and those people that their job is to look for those opportunities to express those hopes, dreams, and aspirations of the folks around us. To me, that's something that's essential that has always been a part of the built process. You go back to ancient Egypt, um, ancient Rome, um, Mesopotamia, all of the buildings were expressive of, you know, different sculptural aspects, um, different colors and textures and materiality. That was something that goes back to the very beginning. And it's something that I think we we lost in error um, after World War II. And it's something that it's about time that it comes back um, in this moment more than ever. We need that expression. We need the built environment to communicate who we are, who we aspire to be. Um, and all of those aspects moving forward. So um, we're going to continue to do that. It's it's in our DNA here at Formula. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep continuing to encourage and try to inspire future generations to think a little bit differently about the, the built environment and to make that built environment a place that, again, is it's more equitable, it's more just, 
and it's more expressive of of the folks that that live in the communities that that these buildings are are taking shape in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, as I, as, as I was sitting here listening to you talk, it, 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 it helped me to think I studied Gothic and Romanesque architecture in college at one point in time. I thought I was going to get into art history, but I didn't. Uh, long story. But the bottom line is, I remember uh, I lived over in Europe for a while and, and just studying buildings. And I can remember people talking about, well, you know, you can you can walk into certain buildings and they some buildings almost feel like they have a soul about them. And it's, you can actually feel it. And then you get into some places that are just very sterile and there's just nothing that emanates from it at all. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is is creating is design with soul, um, which I think will be uh, will be really interesting because I think I think uh, art informs life and life informs art. And I think the two of them are are, uh, are inclusive together and they're not exclusive. They're not separate from each other. So, yeah, I believe very much in different theories of, of embodied energy, right? That the amount of energy, of organization, of effort, of thought, of care that you put into the, the design, the planning, the construction of a building, that that, in, that energy remains in that space and it emanates outward. And you can feel it when you go into, you know, um, I was in Notre Dame Cathedral before the fire, you know, years ago in, in Paris. Um, you can feel it there. You know, I've climbed um, Mayan pyramids and and ruins, uh, you know, at Chichen Itza, at Tikal, um, in Mesoamerica. And when you're sitting, you know, on top of Templo Numero Cinco in the middle of the, the rainforest, you can feel something. There is definitely something emanating and, and vibrating there. And, and I'm a believer that that energy, that effort, that collective community spirit uh, that it took to create some of these things, you know, the, the thought process that it took, the planning effort, the logistics, you know, all that energy to create these, these monuments, these things that speak to us through the millennia, um, that 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 energy, that embodied energy, it it's it's there and it, it doesn't dissipate. It It's there and you can feel it and you can sense it when somebody really cares about a space, when somebody really puts um, heart and soul and spirit into um, an effort like that. It's it's there and it's there's no comparison between that and what we have in sort of the international style of of building um, that sort of came into popularity post-World War II, where everything was about efficiency. Um, everything was about um, using the minimum amount of energy and effort and materials available, right? Um, that's why a lot of these, these structures and a lot of these bridges collapse. Um, they weren't built with that redundancy and that, that, that rigidity and that richness. Everything was built paper thin to these minimal margins to, you know, to look good on spreadsheets and, you know, to justify, you know, the, the disinvestment in our in our cities that was very prevalent, you know, especially in, in the late 70s and 80s with the conservative movement and the anti-tax movement and defund everything meaningful movement, right? That came through, you know, uh, the forces that elected Ronald Reagan and all this conservatism, right? Those were all about doing the, the bare minimum. Those were all about just good enough and no more. It was all about don't waste any money on anything extra. Um, don't invest any money in people, right? It was the bare minimum, the most highly efficient and the thing that looks best on a spreadsheet, quite frankly. And it's been a disaster. It's been a disaster. Um, Pre-war buildings are generally worth the investment in terms of renovating and fixing and, you know, giving some love to uh, post-war buildings. I mean, there's no character. There's uh, a lot of times they have, again, minimal structural systems You'd have to spend so much money trying to reinforce the structure to, to be able to, you know, even accept, you know, an additional floor or a modern renovation that requires um, different types of material um, uh, finishes and equipment than they did back then that you almost have to start over with a lot of these things because 
it, it, it doesn't justify um, that type of investment. It just wasn't built with foresight. Um, it wasn't built to last for a long, 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 long time slash forever like it used to be. It was built to be the minimum thing, built the fastest, to serve the most people in the shortest period of time, and then we'll figure out the rest of it later. Well, we're 50 to 60 years into that experiment now, and we have massive replacement of bridges, tunnels, uh, airport facilities, infrastructure that has to be done because these things, they weren't, they weren't built to last. And uh, we really have a wholesale uh, rethinking to do, quite frankly, of, of our entire built environment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, that's that one way you can look at it is it certainly is job security for design professionals as far as that's concerned. But uh, but no, there is there is a lot more to it. I, I want to just circle back to one thing, and, and it's something that's come up lately in a lot of my conversations. And I know that you said that your grandfather was the deputy chief of police. And, and uh, I'm curious how this whole thing with George Floyd has impacted you from that perspective. Now, I, and I even understand that you may have even come in contact with him. You not that you went in the same circles, but that you were you went to a used to go to a, a restaurant or a place where he used to work. And so you 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 had maybe met him a few times. But how yeah. how has this impacted you from that perspective? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's devastating. Um, it's always devastating um, every single time. Uh, it just so happened that, yeah, he was, uh, you know, regular fixture at the front door, uh, working security at a restaurant and nightclub that I frequented for years. And, uh, you know, I knew him just as big Floyd, you know, um, like so many other of us did, um, sort of in that sort of circle in that sphere. Um, and so it's devastating to lose somebody that, was beloved by everybody. Um, no one ever had said a bad word about him um, that I knew. He was well-respected, um, didn't have any problems with anybody as far as um, any of us knew. So, I mean, it's it's devastating to see um, a loss like that and someone that has a family and, uh, you know, is is was really beloved in, in that circle um, in the Latin music scene um, in the Twin Cities here. Um, so yes, I mean, there's there's a direct effect there. Um, there's also the reality that my family history, you know, my grandfather was um, named deputy chief of police here in 1972, which was the year that I was born. And he, uh, he served for 42 years um, as a police officer. He helped build sort of the, the modernized uh, police department that we have now. Um, his people that he brought in and that he mentored and that he trained have become chiefs um, of police now here and really represent some of the values and some of the initiatives that he brought to bear during his time. And so um, I am very uh, close with the St. Paul Police um, I was on the police uh, commission that selected the most recent chief, Chief Axtell, um, who's a wonderful guy um, and also part of that sort of legacy of tradition that goes back from from my grandfather and some of the influence that that he had. Um, and I think St. Paul police do things very differently than than the Minneapolis police. Um, we certainly have our challenges and we certainly have. Um, plenty of problems, but I feel like we're about 50 years into some changes and um, a different way of policing, being more community-based, community-oriented, um, hiring and promoting people from the community, from within, um, to to do the job of policing the communities that, that they live in. Um, you know, there's a lot of I think nuanced uh, changes that St. Paul has made over these last couple generations. Um, and I think we're a little bit, well, I think we're quite a bit ahead in the process of reform and creation of a department that is more 
um, community oriented and more accountable to the community, not without our problems, not without our challenges. God knows the 80s and 90s were were a very difficult transition for us. Um, and I, I experienced a lot of racial profiling. And I mean, that was, that was really rampant back then during the crack era. Um, and I think we've learned a lot of lessons from that. And I think we've implemented a lot of changes on the St. Paul side from that. I can't necessarily say the same um, for the way things are done in Minneapolis. They're done very differently. And I think Minneapolis has a has a great chief in place now, um, a local guy. Um, who grew up in the neighborhoods, grew up, grew up in the communities and has a tremendous amount of respect um, from the citizenry. But there is a whole series of complications that are really preventing meaningful reform happening on the Minneapolis side. And like I said, I think they're just now starting to really grapple with things that um, my grandfather and you know his successors had started to grapple with you know, um, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly don't uh, don't envy Minneapolis with the challenges that are, that are ahead of them. But um, you know what they say, it does take a village. Right. So, I mean, everybody's got to get involved and and be a part of the change that everybody wants to see. And so uh, I'm certainly sorry for for your loss from the perspective that you knew George Floyd. And I can only imagine when you saw that video, you recognized him right away. And um, and, you know, I think that's the that's the real conversation that I've been having with people, because I get I get calls from a lot of my my white friends. How are you doing? Um, I get calls from other friends, too. But I think sometimes people don't realize the 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 level of pain which can be experienced through a situation like this, even if you don't even know the person. It's still there, uh, you know, as, a, as an African-American, as a black or brown person, you struggle with that. And, and coming from an area like um, like the Twin Cities that has a huge black and brown population. I mean, you've got a, a huge group of people among population there, one of the largest in the world outside of, um, of uh, where they're originally from, uh, Laos. Laos. And uh, thank you. And then also uh, a huge Somali population. That, that's right there. And so, I mean, you've got a lot, I mean, you've got like a, a it, the, the Germans call it a schmelztiegel, a melting pot, right? It doesn't always melt properly, but that's what you have in the Twin Cities. So I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see how how things come, but but it's still, it, it still is a challenge. And, um, you know, and I'd be curious to see what you're, what you're telling young black and brown uh, design professionals that are coming up now in terms of, uh, of what, what they need to be focused on. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a wonderful thing um, to have an influx of newcomers, to have a place that is so highly coveted that new folks generation after generation keep wanting to sacrifice to be here. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge advantage to have. Um, and I think it speaks volumes about sort of what we've done, um, although imperfect, uh, you know, what we've done um, over time to build up this place. Um, I also think it's a wonderful opportunity because with diversity comes diverse viewpoints, um, diverse talents. Um, you get a, a number of different folks looking at the same problems. Uh, that may have new solutions or new ideas that come from their traditions and their cultures that may be blind spots for the rest of us. And so I think it's it's refreshing. Um, I think it's great. I think it is ultimately the competitive advantage that America has over the world um, that we have this diversity. And, you know, we've been at this experiment for, you know, hundreds of years now. Um, but to me, that's the biggest advantage that we have. When we do it right, um, the sky is really the limit. When we do it wrong, um, we have a lot of conflict and sort of petty bickering over limited, scarce resources. So right now in this moment, we're, we're definitely doing it wrong. Um, but I see little microcosms and little um, pockets and areas and organizations and communities that these things, these factors come together and the sum of the parts create something really wonderful. And, um, you know, Lake Street 
which has been decimated, um, a huge stretch of Lake Street, um, which was ground zero for the civil unrest in Minneapolis, was a great example of that. For the past really 30, 40 years, Lake Street has become a very diverse melting pot of all different organi- uh, all different um, groups and ethnicities of people. You get any kind of food from, you know, Mesoamerica, Africa, um, you know, Ethiopian injera to, you know, uh, Indian non-bread to, um, you know, authentic uh, Mexican tacos, Mm -hmm. um, just in a block of each other, right? Um, It was a great, great, real, authentically diverse, um, organically diverse uh, group of people, group of businesses, group of neighbors. And so it's it's devastating on one hand that this had to happen there. But on the other hand, I think there's a great possibility of being able to come together with all of these different groups and all these different folks and creating something that is forward thinking and even better than what they inherited. Because Quite frankly, you know, all of us um, African-American folks that have been in this country for generations, you know, a lot of the, the old buildings, these historic buildings that we sort of hold in esteem that are just kind of old and they're in the community and we think highly of them. You know, those neighborhoods were not black neighborhoods then. Yeah. You know, those buildings were not designed by black people. Those buildings were not built by black contractors and construction workers. Right. A lot of those buildings didn't really accept black people coming in and and shopping and and working in in those spaces. They weren't open to us um, until very recently. And generally, when uh, a previous group of folks has moved on into, you know, some suburban enclave that they created post-World War Two or whatever, and then sort of leaving um, those buildings for us to sort of inherit. Right. And then, oh, now black people and immigrants and other people can inhabit these spaces and occupy these spaces and do business in these spaces. But those spaces were never designed for us. They were never designed by us. They were never built by us. So with this challenge comes an opportunity to actually, for the first time, for a lot of us to actually define what a building or a space that serves our population, our group of people, the way that we live culturally, the way that we organize ourselves and do things. What does a building um, that you're not inheriting, but that you're actually creating from scratch that can now serve you and your vision in a very unique and authentic way? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What are the characteristics of that? Um, What do communities look like um, that are rebuilt in a diverse image uh, rather than sort of a very sort of monoculture image, right? So those are all um, opportunities that are coming from the challenges that we face. Um, but I think it comes back to the the question of resources. Are there going to be resources deployed? And are those resources that are going to be deployed, are they going to reach people that look like us, that look like my Somali friends, that look like you know, my Ecuadorian friends um, that look like my Ethiopian friends, you know, or is it going to go to the same um, group of people that it went to in the beginning? And I mean, is that cycle going to just continue? And so those are those are real fundamental questions that we're going to have to answer. And although there's, I believe, infinite possibility, um, that possibility is pragmatically tethered to access to resources yeah yeah wow yeah i mean you you put it you put it very succinctly in terms of what uh what we can expect and i would say that what we what we will see in the next five to ten to fifteen years especially up in your area is going to inform what we probably see in other parts of the country as well so i think that's going to be it's going to be an interesting challenge and you're right in the thick of it so um, man, I, I, I have nothing but hope for you and your organization and for what you're doing. And I really appreciate you taking time to kind of bear all today. And, and uh, a lot was shared. So thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and, and, and giving us your view of 
of current events as well as what you know what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. Uh, I'd love it if you would be willing to share um, what's a good way for people to get in touch with you if, it, if they'd like to reach out, James. Yeah, I think the best way uh, for people to reach out is either on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Um, those tend to be the places where I spend quite a bit of time these days. My Instagram is 4RMULA underscore ARCH, Formula Arc. And that's my personal Instagram. And then our company Instagram is 4RMULA underscore architects. So I can generally be reached at um, either of those two locations. Um, and then you can just, you can find us very easily on LinkedIn. You can search for me by name or you can search for formula. Sure. And I, I get all those messages. Okay. Well, perfect. Yeah, we, we will do that. And we'll, we'll also link to the formula uh, website. And uh, that way, anybody that's listening to this podcast that wants to reach out and connect with James, uh, maybe to have you come and speak or to have you share, it's, it's uh, I think that 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 you have a, a there is a wealth of possibilities there, and um, certainly uh, I'm sure you're going to be in in quite some demand. Not not only with what you're currently working on within your organization, but also externally helping other other uh, design firms figure out and find their way when it comes to this area. So uh, I wish you nothing but the best, and I thank you so much for for sharing with me. And and I mean I, I could talk to you for hours. We did talk for like a half an hour before we even started this podcast. Yeah. Talking about sports and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's it's so funny how two people that have never met each other have so many things in common, but it's all good. So I, I appreciate that. And and again, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. And certainly we will be watching uh, with bated breath to see what the next uh, iteration is for you and uh, Formula Architects. And, and um, certainly if there's anything that we can do, please uh, feel free to let us know. I will. And I appreciate you uh, inviting me for this conversation and uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, folks, there you have it. It's another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. Uh, it's a heavy one. Uh, we covered a lot of topics and uh, James is just an outstanding individual. I encourage you to check out the show notes and reach out to him, uh, even just for a word of encouragement. We can all use that in this day and age, and especially during this time and season that we're in here in the, in the United States. And um, I appreciate all, all of you guys that listen to the Zweig Letter Podcast on a regular basis. Remember, if you'd like to get a free subscription to The Zweig Letter, just visit thezweigletter.com and uh, check it out. You can sign up right there. There is no requirement. We just need your email address. And every Monday morning, you'll get a nice new PDF with an updated newsletter telling you everything that's happening in the design industry. Remember, The Zweig Letter podcast is here for you. And we come out every other week on Thursday. And uh, we appreciate you guys being a part of the Zweigletter family. Remember, we exist uh, not just to make you more successful, but to elevate the industry. Each and every one of us, black, white, brown, tan, white, doesn't matter. We're trying to elevate the industry as a whole. And so um, that's all that we have for you this week. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I will see you soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zweigletter podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zweigletter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.